This is the SF Productions Podcast Network. How I Got My Wife to Read Comics Episode 606 Can a comic book collector of over 30 years get his wife to read them? Will she let him keep them? Learn more in this podcast. Let's go to the comic book lounge with Mindy and Mark. The first super team returns. Chance is looking over his shoulder. The first eight years of eight billion genies. Miracle Man crosses a line. Pomp and scarabs. When you can't afford a sanctum. And Dracula saves the day. This is How I Got My Wife to Read Comics for Sunday, December 11th, 2022. I'm Mark. And I'm Mindy. Just a reminder, you can go to sfpodcastnetworker.com to get our feed, other SF podcasts and blogs, or subscribe via your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com, like us at facebook.com slash sfppn, follow us on Twitter at sfppn, check out Instagram at sfpodnetwork, or call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. And now something I've wanted to say for at least a decade. Justice Society of America Number 1 by Johns, Janin, and Belair. Spinning out of recent DC events and the new Golden Age one-shot, the JSA is officially back on the board. As in the special, this series is going to hop back and forth through time. 31 years ago, Bruce loses his parents. 13 years ago, Selina jumps out a window. One year from now, Bruce and Selina debate what to do about baby Helena. Bruce says no one can know about her, and if the Arkhams learn the secret, she'll never be safe. Selina replies that it won't be a problem after Bruce helps her kill them all. 26 years from now, Helena, now Huntress, is grilling some hoods for info on the missing Dr. Fate. We learn via interior monologue that Bruce was murdered eight years prior and that Selena killed the sorcerer responsible. Helena has a partner on this job, Solomon Grundy. Fate had contacted Helena after seeing a vision, but he was then attacked. Helena meets up with Ruby Sokov, the new Red Lantern, who informs her that there's no sign of fate at his tower and suggests the witch girl is responsible. At this point, if you haven't read the Golden Age one-shot that included who's who entries on a bunch of new characters, you'll be lost. Check out episode 604 for more info. Cut to a meeting of the new JSA, mostly composed of villains and legacy villains that have supposedly gone straight. The Gentleman Ghost... Grundy, the Harlequin Sun, Icicle Sun, Kyle Knight, a.k.a. The Mist, and Red Lantern. Helena brought them together. Power Girl is also there, incensed that the team has found nothing on fate and convinced they have not changed their ways. We then see a news program about the JSA, with a commentator arguing that the new team is a very bad idea. Later, Helena and Selena argue about that. Helena notes that her dad gave Selena a second chance, why not them? If he hadn't given you a chance, I wouldn't even exist. Two days later, Fate Khalid's body is found in an Egyptian exhibit, somehow mummified for a thousand years. Power Girl is hit with kryptonite and then shot by Perdegaton. He proceeds to take out the rest of the JSA. 
Gentleman Ghost is taken back to the point he's still alive and then shot. Grundy rots away in seconds. Harlequin's son feels old wounds reopen and he bleeds out. Icicle's son is frozen and then shattered. Red Lantern's power is quickly amped up and she explodes. Mist ages decades, goes into dementia, and his heart gives out. Helena begins to quickly age before Selena crashes in and throws the snow globe from Flashpoint Beyond to Helena, telling her daughter that she needs to save the JSA, the old one. The snow globe explodes and we get a double page of events, 18 years from now, a crown of heroes at Bruce's funeral. One year from now, Jake Garrick running alongside his daughter Judy. 1976, Power Girl and Star Spangled Kid flying over the bodies of the JSA in a swipe at All-Star Comics. Number 58, the start of the JSA reboot. 1951, the Golden Age Red Lantern demanding his daughter back. And in 1940, Huntress wakes up at JSA HQ with Johnny Thunder and the Thunderbolt wondering where she came from. The Human Target Book 9 from DC Black Label by King and Smallwood. Chance's final story has taken us through the members of the Boaha JLI, and now it's time for a founding member who quickly departed. Chance and Ice wake up together, except Chance isn't breathing. She cools him off long enough to get him to Dr. Midnight, who finds that the poison killing him hit a spike, and he almost bought it at that point. Of course, Chance isn't thinking about that. He's wondering, where the hell is he? Chance expected him to show up by now. So the couple drive into the desert while Chance works out options in his head. Are they being followed? Tracked? Ice asks him, Are you going to talk about you dying or are we just going to drive? Chance tells her about the fact that he now has four days left to live. I thought she already knew that. Hmm. They stop at a diner in the middle of nowhere and Chance spots a man at a counter. Chance confronts the man, convinced it's him in disguise. They duke it out, and the man is laid out on the floor. Ice is understandably confused, but drags Chance out, giving the waitress a big tip. Chance continues what appears to be an internal paranoid rant about him. Ice demands to know what's happening, and when he ignores her, she causes their car to crash. The car is totaled, but they're okay. He apologizes to her. I'm sorry I didn't tell you. I'm sorry you had to wake up to that. I'm sorry for a lot of things. Then they share how they got their names. Ice came from a marketing guy at the UN, the human target from his military training where he always offered to take the first hit. There's a discussion of death. When she died, there was nothing. You are, and then you aren't. He says, every day you die, every moment, you're not who you were the moment before. Ice whips up a mid-century ice house for them to spend the night. He thinks it's great. They will be able to see him coming for miles. He explains that the message they cooked up to cover Guy's absence will never fool him. Who's better than you? Batman. Batman's better than me. And then I swears. Chance is just waiting for bats to show up. I love you. That's all. I messed up. Although, you know, they use swear words. Ice invites him into the bedroom. Chance wakes up in the middle of the night. He's not coming which must mean that Bruce knows Guy is still alive? Hmm. Eight Billion Genies, number six of eight from Image by Soul and Brown. July, year two, 13 months after G-Day. The band trio are sitting around a fire as a genie tells them about Fun City, a haven for creativity. 
Suddenly, a gunshot blows through a genie, which, of course, has no effect. The others hunker down. People have lost so much, and they want to kill anyone who still has their wish. Daisy asks the genie to get really bright, which blinds the shooters wearing night vision goggles. The first eight years. Human population, 32 million. Genie population, 315,000. Daisy tells off the others. They could have just used their wishes to save themselves. They're still paralyzed by second-guessing. They consider returning to the bar, but they burn too many bridges there. A genie tells them the others at the bar have left as well, leaving only the bartender. The Zangs are building a town in Ohio, worried about what happens when their child is old enough to use her wish. The Greens are in Hope's Hollow working for the Idea Man, who's using combined wishes to take out other havens. The trio agrees to search for Fun City. A genie notes they will need to audition to get in. Are they good enough as a band? Two months later, they find a place created by a wish, with everything stuck in 1982. Year three, Hope's Hollow. June Green tries to convince Ed that this is a bad place. She can see it because she's a remnant. Year four, the band lives in the town that they found, performing and practicing, because again, you only get one chance to audition in Fun City. Year six, The town is wiped out by the Idea Man. Again, the band members don't use their wish in order to save it. They decide they are as good as they're going to be and head to Fun City. Year 7, the Zangs have a good life in their town, but the time is near for their daughter to wish. They ask the genie if they're somewhere safe, and he replies that there is, but they won't like it. In Dugland, Robbie assists Hope's Hollow troops against the Dugs. Year 8, The band auditions in Fun City in a version of The Voice. Despite all their efforts, they're denied. Daisy announces that the other two still have their wishes and things change. This would mean Daisy would still have to leave, so the other two create a wish that their genie is jointly controlled by the three of them, making it a package deal. They have been working on this as an emergency wish for a while. It's a tontine arrangement with a reference to the Simpson episode. Next issue, the first eight decades. Miracle Man, The Silver Age, number two from Marvel by Gaiman, Buckingham, Belair, and Klein, remastered from the original 1993 version. 2003. Dickie, a.k.a. Young Miracle Man, is trying to adjust to his new life. He watched a documentary from 1985 filled with terrible scenes in London, Real Nightmare Fuel. It has no dialogue until the final minute where Miracle Man turns to the camera and says, I'm sorry. Now, Dickie is on a world tour being reintroduced to a new world. The Warpsmiths zap him to a city. There's a parade, a reception. Meanwhile, Miracle Man and Miracle Woman watch the events from afar. Dickie is avoiding his mentor, and Miracle Man wants to resolve things. The leader of New York, or is he the president? shows off a Captain Marvel Jr. comic, noting that young Miracle Man is like rock and roll. The U.S. invented it, but the U.K. created their own version. Dickie asks Winter about all the people in the crowd, and she notes that some are Miracle Man's progeny. There are about 5,000 at the last count. Young Miracle Man is asked to speak, but is interrupted by an alien spouting prophecies involving shapes, music, and crimes of light. The message is for Dickie. Back to the title character who's looking at tapes of Dickie and notices a pattern. 
Dickie returns to his new home and is asked to join Miracle Man for a talk. They discuss what it's like to be a god. I don't have any choice. Somebody had to save the world. Dickie wonders why Kid Miracle Man became evil. Was it the bomb? Miracle Man asks how Dickie feels about him, and he replies that they are chums. I know how you really feel. I must have been blind not to see it. And Miracle Man kisses Dickie, who attacks him. Is that what you did to Johnny? Is that what turned him rotten? Dickie leaves, telling Miracle Man not to follow him. Miracle Man returns to talk to Miracle Woman about what just happened. Did she just manipulate him into kissing him? Hmm. As in all these issues, the second half consists of concept and penciled pages, along with a bit of info about the process. Blue Beetle Graduation Day, number one of six, by Trujillo, Gutierrez, and Quintana. We start off in the midst of a fight between Jaime Reyes and a new villain named Fadeaway. Jaime gives us a quick reintroduction. Normal Latino kid runs into alien scarab, which permanently fuses to his spine. Now he has armor and weapons he can call up. The bad guy gets away, and when Jaime loses the armor, he sees he has a lot of missed messages. He's supposed to be at his high school graduation. Cut to his parents speaking in Spanish with no translation. So uh, I guess that's just for the Latino audience. Just as Jaime runs in. He makes it to his seat, only for the scarab to get a communication. Just as he's called up to get his diploma, the armor kicks in, sending him into the stratosphere to get a better signal. It's a ton of images, along with the phrase, Arrival Protocols Engaged. Now the scarab is speaking in its own alien language. He returns home to a graduation party, but everyone just wants to know what happened. Another person at the party? Superman. He compliments Mrs. Reyes on her delicious elote and then walks outside with Jaime. He talks about how big a day this is and then asks Jaime about his plans. Jaime's not going to college, and between that and issues with the scarab, he feels directionless. Clark replies, you're grounded. They also got the transmission, which indicates the Reacher returning, so it would be safer for Jaime to stay off the radar. It will also give him a chance to figure out what he really wants to do with his life. On the way out, Clark checks in with Bruce, who confirms an invasion is coming. They'll need to keep an eye on Jaime. Back to the party and presents. Toilet paper? Towels? Pillows? Jaime's parents are sending him to Palmera City for the summer to work at his tia's diner. Jaime's buddies see a video on his phone. There's an attack in El Salvador involving a woman wearing armor similar to Jaime's. Anyone you know? Next issue, welcome to Palmera City. The Ones, number two, from Dark Horse by Bendis, Edgar, Diaz, and Reed. We begin 15 years ago at a self-storage place. Wilson's Uncle Steve has brought him here to see something. The Collected Prophecies of Reality. Turns out his family has been the keepers of them for generations, and now they're going to Wilson. Well, why not Uncle Steve's kids? Well, he hates them. Why are they in a storage unit? Because I ain't got the scratch for a sanctum. Also, there's a gnome, Lord Lork, who guards the prophecies. Now it's Wilson's turn at making sure that stuff that is supposed to happen happens and stuff that shouldn't happen doesn't. Cut to now and Armageddon. The ones are arguing as they fight demons. Cut to ten years ago. Wilson has just asked the ones to kill baby Satan and they walked out, agreeing they could wait and see what happens. Lork tells him it will be fine and that Steve is in a better place. Most souls get thrown out, but his was okay. 
A golem hunter breaks in and Lurk puts him down. And then we're back to the present. The team is asking Wilson to take them to Satan. And it is noted that he did tell everyone that this was going to happen. Back to 10 years ago, Novus returns to the room and they discuss how it could have gone better. She suggests he read the fine print about the baby Satan prophecy. Back in the present, Thrace demands to know the names of the demons he's dispatching because he hates to kill mindless creatures. There's more arguing and then a demon tells them they were told not to speak to them. When Thrace says he will chop off your ass, the demon is creeped out. Yeah, um, I'm just going to go Armageddon up over there on this side. A boy in a tuck walks out of the fire and says, Hmm, you wanted to see me? Star Trek Lower Decks, number three from IDW by North and Finoglio. The second contact has gone very wrong. The natives turn out to have tech and have their own private directive involving another group on their own planet that doesn't have tech. Now the bridge crew is going to be killed and the ship destroyed in order to resolve things. Freeman orders the Cerritos to stand down. This will be handled diplomatically. Meanwhile, Dracula attempts to leave the holodeck and finds that he will dissolve if he does. He asks the computer to provide Cerritos stuff to his own database and then starts reprogramming things. The lower deckers are trying to work out how to defend against the alien ship, which cut their shields to pieces, and notice that the computer is slowing down. Turns out Drax's work is taxing the system, so they go investigate. Drax demands real blood, and Boimler realizes they can easily provide enough for his needs. Drax agrees that if they, if they give him blood, he will help them in their crisis. Mariner is very suspicious, but Boimler talks her into it. Back to Freeman, who orders the Cerritos to abandon the away team and protect the ship, which goes into red alert. Rutherford figures out a slow-moving projectile would make it through the alien shields, and Mariner gets Ransom to let her try something. The lower deckers and Drac go to the outer hull, and Tendi will throw Drac as a bat over to the alien ship. Unfortunately, the Cerritos has to go to warp, so they jump off, minus Boimler, whose gravity boots are stuck to the hull, and throw Drac over. Drac breaks into the ship with vampire blowtorch fingers. He can bring up whatever power he wants and connects to the alien's computers. He learns that the alien with the tech stole it from the more primitive group, wiping them of their memories of it. The tech was created because the other group was peaceful and did a lot of R&D. So there's no prime directive issue. In fact, the aliens just made it up after reading Federation databanks. Freeman uses the old, I'm transmitting your evil plan as you boast about it bit, which means if they go forward with their plan, the feds will come down on them. The Cerritos wins the day while Drac is sent off to the Starfleet Emergency Holographic Academy. Boy, just a ton of Easter eggs here. Announcer Bot, how can the folks find us online? Go to sfpodcastnetwork.com to get the feed, other SF podcasts, and blogs. Subscribe by your favorite podcast catcher and leave us a review. You can email sfpodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Like us at Facebook.com slash SFPPN. Follow us on Twitter at SFPPN. Check out Instagram at SFPodNetwork. Call us at 614-321-9737. That's 614-321-9SFP. Back to you, Mark. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.